Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Graham Lee Brewer. Graham is a Cherokee Nation citizen and the secretary for the Native American Journalists Association. This week, he was hired by NBC News Digital as an enterprise reporter based in Norman, Oklahoma. Graham's past writing about Native American issues can be found in many places, including the High Country News, which covers the Western U.S., and the New York Times. He's also regularly featured on NPR. Graham, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. All right. So first things first, congratulations on your new job. This literally just happened a couple of days ago. What can you tell us about it? Thank you. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm going to be a national reporter. I'm really going to be sticking to what I've been doing for the last several years, which is a mixture of covering Indian country, the Western United States, and probably a few things here and there about Oklahoma, which is where United is, is where I live and where I'm from. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, you know, the last several years of High Country News, I've been just intensely focused on Indian country, which has been nice, but there are a lot of other things that I'd like to write about as well. And so I'm looking forward to getting to do that again. Is this kind of a dream job scenario kind of thing? Yeah, it feels that way for sure. I, I was thinking about that actually when they offered me the job and I got off the phone with them and just thought about like how much being a journalism student and when I was at the Oklahoma and the, the newspaper here, I just really wanted the national desk spot. Um, it just seems like a lot of fun. And yeah, I really can't wait. And just the fact that they want me to cover Indian country for a place as large as NBC really, I think, offers the chance to kind of elevate that kind of storytelling on a national level. Certainly very high profile. And I want to stay national and talk about the NAJA, which serves and empowers Native journalists through programs and actions designed to enrich journalism and promote Native cultures. Can you tell us about the organization, maybe focusing on the one or two initiatives that are most important right now? Yeah, so a lot of what we do is kind of, you know, helping non-Native reporters kind of navigate Indian country because it's such a complicated feat that not a lot of people have intense familiarity with. But our, our real main focus is just, you know, helping Native reporters, you know, find the resources they need, the training they need, and also advocating on their behalf. You know, there are lots of instances where we see really poor uh, representation of Native communities that actually can be damaging. And, uh, and and then also, I think, you know, traditionally access to, you know, legacy media is those doors aren't really, uh, haven't been historically open to Indigenous reporters. And we're trying to change that, you know, l- like a fraction, like less than one half of 1% of newsroom employees in the country are Indigenous. And we kind of have a goal to, uh, to get that to like 2% within the next uh, few years. I think we marked that as a 10-year goal about two or three years ago. And, you know, just trying to build those pipelines to get more Indigenous journalists into newsrooms is, is one of our most important initiatives. How many different, how many people are in the NAJA? How many uh, reporters and editors and such do you have? I want to say currently we're either just over or close to 700 which is a huge jump for us. We've seen that number jump up by a couple hundred recently, and we're getting ready to expand into Canada so that we'll be accepting, we already are accepting First Nations members from Canadian tribes. And so we're trying to be a resource, not just for Native American journalists, but for Indigenous journalists, certainly on the continent and hopefully someday around the world. Okay, so I've mentioned the different places that you have reported for. How many publications are there that put significant coverage into Native American issues in daily life? 
Not that many, you know, honestly, high country news was the first place that ever reached out to me and said, we want you just to cover Indian country. Nobody had ever said that to me before. So that's why that opportunity was so special. And that's why I think that the desk that we've built there is so unique. You know, we, there's not a lot of places that really write about, or I'm sorry, for indigenous communities. They're really they write about them, kind of that outsider looking in. And, and th- this is a really big problem, of course, on the national uh, scale with reporters who, and this is probably something that I'm going to end up doing myself at NBC is, you know, parachuting into a community. Parachute journalism has got benefits, but it also has tremendous drawbacks because, it, you know, when you're a non-Native reporter and you parachute into an Indigenous community and all you know about Native people are the stereotypes and the myths that Hollywood has fed you your entire life, and you've never actually known an indigenous person or been part of a tribal community, uh, it's really easy to, to continue that stereotype and perpetuate that damage. And I think a lot of publications recognize that they don't do it well, but they're also afraid of it, you know, because they don't want to mess up. And so it's a tricky place. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't find a lot of coverage of indigenous communities. I, th- I think that's slowly changing, you know, the, the, climate that we live in the country now where we're having these more open discussions about equity and representation, I think are helping our cause at Native American Journal Association. But really, you know, when it comes to organizations that have reporters that are fully devoted to covering indigenous communities, you're either going to find them at tribal newspapers. Report for America has a lot of bureaus, but mostly they're from indigenous owned companies like Indian Country Today or Indians.com. I want to talk about some of the work that you've done as we talk about the different stories that you've written and things that you've covered. I've seen your work in Audubon recently. I've seen it in High Country Times. I found stuff from the, I found articles from the New York Times. What was the most recent piece that you did and what went into it? Oh, so let's see. I wrote a piece recently where, so Secretary Holland, the Secretary of the Interior, she, on her first day in office, they reached out, her office reached out to the Native American Journal Association and said, you know, we want to, we want to meet with a group of Indigenous reporters on Secretary Holland's first day. And so they kind of, the Interior asked our, the president and and uh, vice president to kind of put together a list of Indigenous media. And I was lucky enough to be included on that. And it was just a really neat opportunity to get to engage with Secretary Holland on a really focused level. You know, every single question that was asked, we all 10 of us only got one question. It was a very short press conference, but, but every single question was about a really specific and immediate issue that is facing or concerning indigenous communities across the country. And, and so I, I wrote up a short brief just kind of about some of the highlights of that press conference, because I think it's, it was not only just really great access and really great information to gain, you know, her perspective on, on things and what she thinks is possible during her tenure, but I think it was also a nod, I'm hoping it was a nod to the access that Interior is willing to give Indigenous reporters under the Biden administration. It, under Zinke, you know, the Interior was clandestine and it was closed off and it was being consolidated in a lot of ways. And this is really just like a a total sea change in how I think the interior is dealing with tribal media in particular. Yeah, it was actually, it was a really, it was a really cool experience. I was really um, honored to be part of that, that first press conference. Is there anything else from the Biden administration that has made you think that there there will be an elevate that will help with the elevation of reporting on native American issues? Yeah. I mean, I think just making like one of the things that's tricky when you cover Indian country is that 
unless you're at a tribal newspaper or a place like Indian Country Today, and maybe this is true at Indian Country Today too, but you, you accept that most of your readers are not native. So at High Country News, I would assume that the vast majority of my readers are not native. But native readers are the ones who are foremost in my mind when I'm writing. And I think just making, helping people make the connection that tribal nations are an intricate part of everyday life here, especially like here in a place like Oklahoma, where tribal nations build bridges and fund schools and pay for police officers and hospitals and things like that. You know, they're providing all this infrastructure. They're, they're, they're a necessary part of the fabric of the society here. And one of the things that the Biden administration I see do, and I hope that this isn't just talk and that it is actually going to be policy and substance as well, is that Biden, Buddha judge, like all sorts of people, Kamala Harris, whenever you hear them talk, they say, you know, we really need to be working with our state, local, and tribal partners. Like just the fact that tribal governments are a part of their stump speeches every single time I hear them signifies to me that they're really elevating the way that they interact with those governments and the way that they talk about it publicly. And I think that helps people who aren't familiar with Indian country really understand that these nations have had a nation to nation relationship with the government for a long time. And um, it affects a lot of people's lives. I read a story that you co-authored for High Country Times about Bears Ears National Monument and how President Biden said it's in his plans to protect more public lands. Trump went very much in the other direction on this. And I feel like we hear about this sort of thing from time to time. But with that, and with what you wrote for Audubon, it feels like it's come to the front of the line. Can you explain the story and what's important to know from a journalistic perspective? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, the Trump administration, you know, he reduced Bears Ears National Monument by, I want to say, like 85 percent. And, you know, that took away so many federal resources for protecting those lands. You know, I think it's just important to keep in mind that these national parks, these national monuments, you know, the reason that they're in this, this state that we view as like pristine and untouched is because they were taken care of for millennia by the indigenous people that inhabited them originally. And so that's why places like Bears Ears and that designation are so important because the Obama administration really put forth a tremendous effort to work with tribal partners to create those boundaries and work, work it out in a way that all parties could find something they were happy about in it. And so I think, you know, just the fact that Biden could reverse that or probably will reverse that. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, again, it's like another sea change. I mean, when you think about the fact that, you know, Tr Trump did all sorts of things when it comes to Indian country that were re really counterproductive in terms of relationships with those sovereign nations, you know, things like suggesting that indigenous people should uh, have a work requirement to receive healthcare through Indian health services, or, you know, ha hanging a portrait of Andrew Jackson in the Oval Office, the president who signed off on the Trail of Tears. You know, all of those things are signals to indigenous people that, that he's not listening or paying attention to their wants or needs or concerns. And I really don't think it's like a high bar that Biden has to, to do better than that and to signal to those communities that he's paying attention. But I do get the sense that he's still making that effort more than, you know, previous administrations. I think you could, you know, make the argument that Obama was really good to Indian country in a lot of ways, but I think that there's still a lot of ways that, you know, he let Indian country down. And I, I don't know, I think the pressure on the Biden administration is pretty high right now to do something in terms of relations. But, you know, with, with his initiative to 
protect 30% of the country's oceans and waters by the year 2030, um, which is an initiative that's kind of, you know, moving around the globe. I don't think that it's possible for the Biden administration to achieve that goal without partnering with tribal nations. And yeah, I think we're going to see a whole new level of reporting on tribal nations as the governments that they are. A lot of reporting about indigenous communities is about culture and tradition. And not, in my view, not enough of it is about policy and, and law. You know, tribal nations have elected leaders and they have different ways that they pass laws within their nations and they have jurisdictional boundaries that cross with state and local governments. And I think it, it, under the Biden administration, we're, we're going to hopefully see a lot more policy reporting in terms of tribal governments. And you'll have a, a chance to impact that in your work for NBC News. Um, certainly, certainly. Yeah. All right. It seems to me like a lot of the coverage of Native American issues is of bad news. Land disputes, the dislike of the governor of Oklahoma, early age death of tribe members as I was going through stories looking at different coverage, or what I would call awkward news, which was Elizabeth Warren and her claims of tribal ancestry. What are the good news stories that we should be aware of and that should be that we should be paying attention to from a, a journalistic perspective? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think a lot of reporters really focus on what they perceive to be tragedy. But even a lot of those stories of tragedy, I would argue that they're really just stories of resilience, you know, despite the, you know, genocide, the colonial settler structure, like, you know, people are still finding ways to survive and hold each other up. And I think that's quite remarkable. But to answer your question, I, I think there's lots of things that tribes are doing that are extremely like positive, you know, just to, to Take an example that you mentioned, you know, that the go go governor Stitt here in Oklahoma and, and how tribes have been kind of squaring off with him. St governor Stitt really, he, really what this started with is that he wanted tribes to pay more money uh, to, to the state for the privilege of being able to exclusively run casinos. So he wanted more of the casino revenue from tribes to go towards the state. And the language in, in the, the legal language in the contract was very, or the compact, I'm sorry, was very clear that the, the tribes didn't have to do that. And so it created this like really tense back and forth between the governor and all these tribes in Oklahoma. And that, that, that tension has not gone away. It's only increased with the uh, Supreme Court's McGirt decision taking shape in Eastern Oklahoma. So was, but, but the thing that I think was really interesting about that story was that the reporting on it really made regular Oklahomans, like non-native Oklahomans, fully understand and I think in a lot of ways appreciate what tribes do for them. So I mentioned earlier, you know, tribes build bridges and roads and police and hospitals. And whenever Stitt engaged in this battle with the tribes, the tribes are really savvy here. And so they, they launched a really smart, sparkling campaign or a public affairs push to really remind Oklahomans exactly what they do for them and I remember when I was reporting on it, talking to people in rural towns who were like, look, you know, city managers who were saying, like, if it wasn't for the Kiowa tribe or, you know, the Chickasaw Nation, whoever, like, you know, it's not like Amazon is going to come build a factory here in this town of, of 1,200 people. But the tribes are putting jobs here and they are putting health clinics here and they are fixing my roads. And I, I do think that people started to appreciate you know, the infrastructure and the way that their lives intertwine with those tribes. And so I think that there's a lot of things like that. You know, the Cherokee Nation, my tribe, you know, we have a license plate program and it, it pumps millions of dollars into public school systems every year, you know, and just look at the coronavirus response that the tribes have had. It's been remarkable. Tribes here in Oklahoma are vaccinating people at such high rates that 
I, I didn't think I'd be able to get a vaccine through my tribe because we're so large. I, I was in phase three. And before I could even, before they even really hit phase two, they announced that I, I was eligible because they've gone through so many tribal citizens that now they can just vaccinate anybody. It doesn't matter if you're native or not. And so I, I think that there's a lot of ways that tribal governments are working really efficiently during the pandemic. And, and those are, you know, again, like you're saying, success stories. Yeah. And you mentioned that, as you said before there, it's all in how it's framed as well. So I wanted to ask this really on behalf of myself, because it was something that I was challenged by as I started doing research for this for this particular interview. What are the most common style points that journalists who admittedly, as we are here, this is, we, we talk to someone different each week, we're somewhat parachuting in to do stories on Indian country. What are, what are the things that we don't get? And can you explain the proper usage of indigenous versus Native American? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I think just that last point, in, indigenous is, you know, a term that you could apply to the indigenous people of any given region of the world. But I think, you know, when you're, especially if you're living in a place like, you know, a border um, with uh, Mexico or Canada, where indigenous people live on both sides of those borders, but they might not be technically identified as Native American. The word indigenous, I think, is just an easier way to speak about, you know, people of this area who may now be divided by, you know, political lines, but are really, you know, come from the same cultures and, and communities. And yeah, I think indigenous is just uh, an easier kind of way to describe a group of a larger group of people. But, you know, one of the things that I think is is really important to do when you're covering Indian country is to just ask your sources how they want to be identified. You know, I know a lot of people who might be enrolled in one tribe, but they descend from several. And so just saying that they are from the tribe that they, you know, are a citizen of might not fully encapsulate, you know, who they are and how they identify. You know, that's something that we do for sexual orientation, for instance, when we ask our sources how they would like to identify by their pronouns. And so I, I don't think it's, you know, dissimilar to ask people how they want to identify in terms of their indigeneity. And also, you know, it's super complicated. I mean, you have state level or st state recognized tribes, you have federally recognized tribes, you have people who aren't enrolled because of um, adoption cases, but still very much identify as indigenous. So I just think it's like really important to ask your sources how they choose to identify. And it also, you know, it gives you an opportunity to, to ask some of those questions and, and to, you know, to give them an opportunity to feel comfortable. And, you know, one of the things that we've been advocating for a long time at uh, the Native American Journal Association is for the, the capitalization of the word indigenous so that it creates a real distinction between indigenous things like, you know, indigenous plants and indigenous people. And that's something that, you know, lots and lots of people who have been on the Native American Journal Association board for many years have been asking for. And it's something that we're finally seeing more and more, you know, like the New York Times, I think PRI's The World. I want to say The Guardian, certainly at High Country News. A lot of publications have adopted that. To that point I made earlier about asking people how they identify, that's actually something that we got the Associated Press to agree to recently. And just to give you a, for example, you wouldn't say like, if you were talking about me, you wouldn't say, you know, Native American journalist Gramley Brewer, you would say Cherokee Nation journalist Gramley Brewer, because it, it's not just a racial distinction, it's one of nationality. And, and so now actually, when you don't do that, you're breaking the, the AP style guide. It's kind of an added bonus when we're prodding people to do it the way that we have always suggested. But, I, you know, I think just, you know, leveling with your, your sources and asking them what they're comfortable with. You know, I think that there's a lot of things that 
people, you know, as journalists, we're kind of taught to add color to our stories, to add like a sense of scene and place. And when you don't know indigenous communities and you aren't familiar with them, and then you go to like a ceremony or something, it's, it's, they're beautiful and they're engaging and they're different and they're unique and they're something that you want to tell people about. And I think a, a really good rule to follow when you're in Indian country and you see something like that and you're a part of something like that, even if you've been invited, is to ask your sources, what are you comfortable with me including in my story? Because I, I've been on the ground in you know really important practices, ceremonies, and traditions like that. And I always make a point to ask, like, is it okay if I describe what I'm seeing to my readers? Because there's a lot of things that they don't feel comfortable sharing. You know, you have to keep in mind that it wasn't until 1978 when Jimmy Carter signed into law religious freedoms for indigenous people. Those things were, you know, up for grabs for archaeologists and anthropologists and whoever else wanted to appropriate them. And there was no legal means of redress for indigenous people to protect those things. And it's insulting when you, knowing that history, then go in and ask if you can take them again, when really they need to be protected and preserved by the communities that they were stolen from. You know, I think, so I I think it's just like a really good way to build trust is to say, to never ask for forgiveness, to always ask for permission. Treating your sources with respect, if we were going to summarize it uh, in a sentence. Yeah, yeah, okay. totally. I think just real quickly, I just think that one thing that non-Native reporters have traditionally failed to do a lot in Native communities is just to apply the same ethical standard to those communities that you would your own. Okay, we now turn things over to Emmy Lederman, College of New Jersey, class of 2021, soon to be graduating senior for what we call the advice portion of the podcast. Hello, you mentioned earlier a statistic that I found that one half of 1% of newsroom employees in the United States are indigenous. And this is according to the American Society of News Editors in their 2019 survey. So how can the next generation of journalists who are going into the field support the NAJA and work to change this? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think one of the things that I have found is uh, not just a member of NAJA, but a, and a board member is that you have to foster those relationships young and you have to help build those pipelines. And I really like the Toni Morrison quote, and I'm probably going to slaughter it, but basically like the, the point of having power is to pass it to people who don't have it. And Native kids are the least likely demographic to get any preparation for college. And I think it's very easy to assume that also means that not many native kids are told that journalism is an option for them. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to do is to start building those relationships with high schools, with colleges, and helping identify indigenous students who show an interest in journalism and not only providing like training or platforms or opportunities for them, but, you know, just telling young native kids that showing them that journalism is something that can be rewarding and exciting and fulfilling. And, you know, we do a lot of mentorship programs through Nausea. And that's something that it's one of the reasons why I'm a journalist. And so I think that is how you fix that problem is by finding ways to get more native voices in your publication. And I don't just mean in your sources and in your bylines too. And, you know, I know, I know some papers and some public radio stations who will get privately funded initiatives to, you know, build freelance money so that they can hire, you know, the occasional indigenous op-ed writer or have a, you know, a, a, a freelance native reporter report a story for them. The Guardian does this a lot where they 
reach out to Indigenous authors to write about Indigenous issues. And so I think really it's just, you know, trying to provide those opportunities. And the system as it is means that you have to seek those opportunities out and kind of help build those structures yourself. And how would you like to see non-Indigenous journalists report on these communities? What internal and external changes would you like to see among newsroom and, newsrooms and organizations? I think, you know, I think there's a couple ways you can get at that. For editors, I would say it's reading more Indigenous authors and journalists because a lot of the framework that we have been provided as Americans is that, you know, Indigenous communities were savage or antiquated or they were the necessary cost of American progress. And so we have to undo all of that, you know, miseducation that we got over the years by reading people who actually know the true histories of the country and the the communities that were decimated by colonization. And then for reporters, I would say that it's asking yourself, is it more important for me to explain this Indigenous community to outsiders or is it is the more important questions I should be asking ones that those indigenous people in the community I'm covering want answered? And I would hope that the that's the question that you would want to answer. That, and that's what I was getting at earlier when I said writing for indigenous communities and not about them. You know, we I think a lot of non-native reporters feel the need to try to kind of explain the systems and the communities that they're encountering indigenous communities rather than asking questions that those communities need answered for accountability purposes. And is there anything about your career path in journalism that has surprised you? And what is your best advice for young journalists that maybe they weren't taught in school? Oh, you know, I never dreamed that I would be lucky enough to work in both print and radio early on in my career like I did. I grew up loving NPR and that's what led me to being a radio reporter right out of college. And and I was really surprised to be able to make it to the Oklahoman. And I felt extremely lucky to be a print reporter at a newspaper, like when it still kind of felt like being a print reporter at a newspaper. It's you know been five years since I've done that, but you know, at the time the Oklahoman still printed the paper right there on site. And so if you worked the nighttime cops beat, you could go watch the paper be printed. And there's something really special about that. And I'm really glad I got to experience that. As far as advice for young journalists, I think You know, one of the things that I didn't realize until I got to High Country News and I started getting pitches from writers is that, you know, you get like a really long pitch, like an 800 word pitch. And like, okay, this is as long as the story I would have hired you to write. And it kind of made me realize like nobody ever taught me how to pitch a story to a national outlet when I was in college. And I am sure that there are some colleges that do that. But like, I think just learning how to really focus a local story for a bigger audience or to find find a way to, for a bigger story to be localized for a smaller audience. Like those are really valuable skills when it comes to learning how to pitch to somebody and getting them to bite and uh, trust you to take the story. And I think if I could just say one thing about pitching, it's that the best pitches are 200 to 300 words at the most. They tell me the characters, the narrative thread and the stakes why, like why I should be interested. And they do that all in, in that short amount of time. And yeah, don't over explain yourself in your pitch, because if your pitch is good enough, if your story has a high enough stakes and good enough characters, you can explain all that backstory on the phone call that you'll inevitably have with that editor. Okay. As we wrap up with the Graham Lee Brewer, one or two last things, what's your favorite kind of story to cover? You know, that's tough. One of the things 
I actually really enjoy covering breaking news stories. You know, like these last several years working at High Country News, one of the things that we do is we we don't move fast on a story. We we provide a deeper analysis. And that's been really fun because you get to dig in and write, uh, you know, a really meaty, well-researched story. But one of the things I definitely miss about the Oklahoman and, and something I'll probably get to do a little bit at NBC now is just being on the ground for something that's happening right in the moment that you can't control, whether that be a natural disaster like a tornado or, you know, a, a large protest like we saw, you know, in the days after George Floyd's death. So those kinds of stories, I think, are really exhilarating because I you know, one of the things that I remember doing at the Oklahoman was th- when I first got there is I hated door knocking. Like if there was a murder or something wild happened in the neighborhood, I hated knocking on people's doors. And by the time I left the paper, it was one of my favorite things to do because just like being on the ground for a natural disaster or a protest is that you're confronted with like people that you never would have been confronted with in your personal life. And you go to places that you would never be otherwise. And I guess like, I guess really, I just love meeting people and learning about their lives. And I, I think, you know, breaking news stories are fun, but I also really like stories about like little places that people might not know about or might forget and showing you like how actually they're really important to things that we do in our lives all the time. I, I did a story about Bacon, the art school here in Oklahoma. And Bacon is this tiny little school with like a few hundred students, but that school changed the art world in the, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And, uh, and just, you know, rediscovering for some people a place like that is really fun and rewarding too. Last question for Graham Lee Brewer of NBC News and the NAJA. Is there another journalism organization besides those or person that you would like to salute? You know, I am just constantly in awe of the work of some of our kind of sister organizations, the National Association of Black Journalists, the Asian American Journalists Association, uh, the uh, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, and uh, NLGJA, the Association for LGBTQ Journalists. I think just seeing the work that they're doing and really advocating for their communities and their representation in the media. And then also just whenever one of those organizations needs something, I'm just always encouraged by how eager the other ones are to help them and back their play. Just recently, the Society of Professional Journalists, I think it was today, issued a statement condemning Minnesota police who were threatening to arrest journalists on the ground at the protest. And every one of the organizations I just mentioned, you know, all joined in on that call to say that was not okay. And that's outrageous. And I think all of those organizations are doing incredible work. And, and I would add that all of those organizations, to my knowledge, just like NAJA have associate memberships. So you don't have to be native to join NAJA. You don't have to be a um, Hispanic to join NAHJ. And I would encourage reporters of all backgrounds to join those organizations and uh, go to their conferences and learn from their journalists and, uh, and just, it can only make you better at your job, you know? Yep. And you can also listen to this podcast uh, because we intend to talk to people from every one of those groups. That sounds uh, great. <laughs> so we've covered a few. We've talked to a few already. Graham Lee Brewer, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck in your new job. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure uh, talking shop with you. Thanks for having me. The Native American Journalists Association serves and empowers Native journalists through programs and actions designed to enrich journalism and promote Native cultures. Naja recognizes Native Americans as distinct peoples based on tradition and culture. In this spirit, Naja educates and unifies its membership through journalism programs that promote diversity and defends challenges to free press, speech, and expression. 
Naja is committed to increasing the representation of Native journalists in mainstream media. It encourages both mainstream and tribal media to attain the highest standards of professionalism, ethics, and responsibility. Learn more at najanewsroom.com. We open the reporter's notebook with Emmy Lederman after talking to Graham Lee Brewer, now of NBC News, a, a very interesting conversation in a number of respects. E- Emmy, uh, start us off. What was the thing that uh, he said? What was your biggest takeaway from the things that he said today? So something that will stick with me is the fact that he hated knocking on doors when he was covering breaking news stories, but towards the end of the role that he had as a journalist doing breaking news, it ended up being one of his favorite things. So I think that just really goes to show that in this industry, there will be a lot of times where you're pushed out of your comfort zone, but it's important to kind of sit in that discomfort because it may end up teaching you something about yourself. It's funny for me, knocking on doors has always been a challenge. How has it been for you and trying to get past some of the the difficulties of it? I think that it really depends on the story. I would say it's kind of foggy in my memory because it's not really like we're knocking on many doors nowadays. But, you know, I think in general, another thing he talked about is that he loves being a journalist just because he loves being social and, and talking to people and covering these stories that wouldn't necessarily be covered by what he calls these parachute media organizations. So I think those stories where you get to have conversations that you never would have had if you weren't a journalist is what makes the job worthwhile. And essentially conversations that are both comfortable and uncomfortable, kind of like you're talking about. I thought, too, for the second week in a row that we might get a journalism lesson. If you remember last week's podcast, Ed Madison went back and forth with you. Ed Madison talked to you about trying to shape what you were interested in doing for your career. Graham gave what I felt was a lesson, and I was waiting for him to ask you about trying to pitch a story and what that was like. So I was curious for your take on him uh, bringing up pitching stories. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how valuable it was to be able to pitch stories, especially because you're really not taught about how to be a freelance journalist in college. And I think I definitely would have benefited from, even if you're not a freelance journalist, just sending a pitch to your full-time boss. You're never really taught how to win someone over with your own pitch. You're kind of just taught how to take a story that you're assigned and how to run with it. So I thought that was a really good piece of advice. I like that he said that he had gotten pitches that were as long as the stories that were intended to be written. I have, I have somewhat experienced that in uh, my line of work. The other thing that I thought was interesting was talking about framing and how he was saying that there are many Native American indigenous stories that if you look at them a different way are stories of perseverance as opposed to stories of tragedy or bad news. And I was just curious for your take on that. Yeah, I something that struck me in a similar vein is when he talked about the fact that people don't really challenge this narrative that's common in these parachute organizations because they don't want to get anything wrong and they're afraid of failure, which is why he went back to the point that it's important to always ask questions if you aren't sure. And really this idea of writing for a group of people opposed to about a group of people, because he knows that when he's writing an article, most readers are not going to be Native, but he still writes nonetheless for his Native readers. Absolutely. Thanks, Emmy. 
The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. How can you not like the guy the second you meet him? He was funny, you know, didn't pull any punches. You could tell he was kind of an old school guy, always had you know, a stack of newspapers in his hand. Bill Price, a TCNJ alum who is now the editor-in-chief of NHL.com, remembers getting a note in his dorm from Cole after picking up a sports editor position at the school paper. He told him that his writing was okay, but could be a lot better if he really focused on journalism and took his class. Cole later set Price up in a position at the Trentonian, where he covered high school sports. And then one day he saw me, he's like, hey, like, what happened with the Trentonian? You know, I haven't seen your name in the paper. And I was like, oh, I'm just answering, you know, answering phones and taking box scores. And he just looked at me, he goes, bullshit you are. And I didn't know. And like within like a day or two, I got a call from somebody else like, hey, we need you to cover high school football game or high school basketball this weekend. So he must have called somebody and lit lit a fire under someone's ass. As a diehard Mets fan, Bill Price remembers the look on Cole's face when he actually showed up for class on the day after the Mets won the World Series. And it was like a one o'clock class and the parade started at noon. And I walked into class at like 105 and he looked at me, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you know, we have class. He's like, ah, he goes, you could have blown this class off for the Mets parade. He was this character larger than life. But he knew how to relate to, he knew how to relate to, you know, the 20 year old kid who had no idea what he was doing or getting into. That, that's what I thank him for the most. And you never walked away from a conversation with him feeling bad, right? Like you could be like, oh man, like I really let him down or I really let myself down. But it was always, there's always another story, right? Like there's always another byline, there's always another story, always another chance to get it right. I'm Emmy Lederman. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.